Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Fiona Erskine. Now Fiona is a professional engineer with 40 years of international manufacturing experience. Now based in Teesside, England, she grew up in Edinburgh, studied chemical engineering at Cambridge University and has since travelled the world working in fertiliser factories, oil terminals and international construction projects. Fiona's first job was in the factory described in her novel, Phosphate Rocks, A Death in Ten Objects, which has recently been published by Sandstone Press to great acclaim. Her first novel, The Chemical Detective, came out in 2019 and was shortlisted for the Specsavers Debut Crime Novel Award, while the second book in the series, The Chemical Reaction, came out in 2020. And there are at least two further books to come in the series, featuring the main character, Jack Silver, The Chemical Cocktail, which is due out in 2022, and a fourth novel in 2023. Fiona, welcome to the Read All About It podcast. Thank you. I wanted to immediately start chatting to you about your novel, Phosphate Rocks, uh, A Death in Ten Objects, which I mentioned has just come out recently, published by Sandstone Press. And I was first of all, I was wanting to ask you, I've, I've been trying to tell people about the novel, and I think my vocabulary and my knowledge is maybe inadequate to kind of properly sum it up. Basically, I've just told people, you have to read this book. That, that's been my bottom line. You have to read it and then you can thank me later. But I was hoping that you <laughs> might be able to just give us a kind of sense of, it's, it's this wonderful, extraordinary book, but it's, I suppose it's hard to categorise it really, isn't it? It is a little bit hard to categorise. I guess on one level, it's a, it's a crime story. So um, a body is discovered in a, a fertiliser factory while it's being demolished. So it's long stop functioning and a uh, construction crew, a, a demolition crew, are uh, tearing it to bits, and they stop when they when they find a body mummified in hardened phosphate rock, surrounded by ten objects, and they're unusual objects, not the sort of objects you'd normally expect to find in a fertilizer factory. So the part of the story is a mystery, trying to discover who is it, uh, what happened to them, and that allows me to introduce the main character. Um, a guy called John Gibson, who is a real person, who was a former shift foreman at the factory and basically knew what, everything that went on there. But I guess for me, it was an excuse really to tell the story of my very first job in all its messy entirety and, and also a kind of just a kind of a love story, I think, to that world, that factory, that those people, ways of working that are thankfully long gone in some, in many cases. But it was my first understanding that the way things are written down on paper and the way things happen in practice in all walks of life, you know, whether it's in um, manufacturing or in publishing or in football or, you know, whatever it is, human beings are so immensely complicated and the way we solve problems and the way we, the way we work is incredibly difficult to work, to write down. And we're not, we're not computers, we're not machines. We don't, we, things are not black and white. There are many shades of grey. And it was really just trying to capture a little bit of that time because I think it was just such a, a rapid learning experience for me. It really left some some deep memories. Because you're actually, you kind of float in and out of the, the novel. You're there as a character. But 
you know, even that, that thing you were touching on of working practices have changed and maybe to the extent maybe use the character, what you'd learned and then what you're taking into the practical world and some of the characters, whether it is John or maybe some of the other characters, some of that, what they'd learned was instinctive and what they'd learned was on the job and it worked, but you couldn't have, it would have been hard for you to explain it or quantify it, but you know, whether it was the, the touch of something or the smell or the taste or just, just a feeling of the kind of what was in the air, the atmosphere, that, that was extraordinary. And that was that contrast with, you know, you as the character coming in and with your education and knowing this is how it should be done, but they, they had learned over years and years. Absolutely, yeah. And it's amazing what people learn. So in, in the phosphoric acid plant, um, you had to pull a vacuum to draw the phosphoric acid through the gypsum. And that was done with huge um, steam ejectors and they condensed into hot wells. So these were just like seawater pots where you know hot seawater was constantly coming down and so so John would go and um, he would dip his finger in in the warm seawater and taste it and if he could if he could taste that sort of tangy taste of coca-cola you know that sort of slightly acid taste uh, which is phosphoric acid in coca-cola he would know that there was a leak and if it just tasted like seawater it was fine but later on the guys told me that they used to pee in it (laughs) (laughs) because they knew that (laughs) They knew that every now and again he'd go and taste it. So there were kind of all sorts of just ridiculous little things like that, which was, um, yeah, it was this very strange world. That idea of, you know, it's the full title of the novels, Phosphate Rocks, a death in 10 objects. And as you said, it's 10 unusual objects. But I like that idea of, because it's made me start to think of how, if you're piecing, piecing together the objects of, to tell the story of your life, or me as the reader of my life, what would be the things, if you had to choose your, the 10 objects, and once you've chosen them, you're then almost able to, if you novelise it, actually telling a story, but those objects branch out into all different sorts of parts of your life and other people's lives and how they interact. Absolutely. And it was easier to use the object. I mean, you know, each chapter is really around a character in the factory, but some of them are kind of amalgams because apart from John and myself, you know, the rest are not real people based on real people, but you know, they're, they're not as clearly, I didn't want to offend and I didn't also didn't want to get sued, but using an object it's sort of it's a great way having a physical tangible thing it's a great way to be able to weave a story around so yeah that really helped and the other thing that I that struck me as someone who didn't get beyond kind of basic O-grade chemistry I was reading the book and within the book again there's some really fascinating aspects of chemistry of your knowledge but how almost in relation to us and our bodies and and that I thought that was fascinating and I you know, I was learning as well as enjoying the crime mystery. I kept thinking, see, even if I'd read that when I was at school, you're in- immediately engaged in a subject where, for a lot of people, you, you maybe shied away from it. Well, thank you. I mean, that makes me incredibly happy because I do, I do think there's so much, so much fascinating stuff out there, and that you know, we there's a lot we take for granted, and you know, any opportunity to try and share some of the magic and wonder of, of science and chemistry and engineering. You know, I really, I'm really pleased when someone says, look, I wouldn't normally read that, but, you know, actually, I quite enjoyed it. I think it was so much more. That's why when I was saying to you at the start, it was, it's difficult to categorise it because, as you say, yeah. one hand, there is that mystery of who the body is. And then within that, you're telling the story of this factory. And, and I suppose the, the demise, to an extent, of that, that industry, large industry in, in, in Scotland. But then within it, there's this, even just the, you know, I'm learning aspects of what chemicals that are in my body that I would never have. I would never have known. Wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is it's, it's extraordinary, and you kind of feel that you're you're getting an education uh, while you're reading the book as well. 
yeah sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> well that was a, that's, that was a positive thing because it, it made me sometimes you know like sometimes i think that knowledge is wasted on on you know you say youth is wasted on the youth sometimes i think that some of the, the things that actually as you're older you find really fascinating that you were probably taught at school perhaps it's maybe in the teaching methods or maybe it's just the fact that there's yeah. so many other distractions Yes. I mean, I just think the power of stories is, you know, it's we remember stories so much more than we remember kind of, you know, unrelated facts. And I, I don't know about you, but nowadays, I mean, you know, with a smartphone, with Wikipedia, you don't actually need to remember that much. You do remember how to ask the right questions, but, you know, you can easily find dates and, you know, other stuff. But the stories are the things I think that stay with you. And I think in relation to that, that's probably why because immediately you're you're hooked as a reader because you want to know who the body is. But in the way you kind of unravel it, you're telling this story that, that gets you, you're totally into it. So within that, you're then giving us these wee pearls of wisdom that, that I suppose you hope that we, hope that we, we retain. <laughs> but I mean, you can gloss over. I mean, I, I tried to structure it in a way that for people who just really weren't interested in the kind of the background stuff could gloss over that you know, if they wanted to, but, you know, a, a lot of the feedback, you know, a lot of the feedback I've got has been re- really lovely because people have enjoyed those bits as much as the mystery itself. I said right at the very start, all I've been saying to people is you just need to read this book and then you can thank me later. And I would say to people, <laughs> if they're reading it, don't skip over those bits because okay. I think they're part of the whole experience. You could, as you say, you could, and then just find out the mystery of who, who that body is. But I think you're missing out on what makes it more than just a mystery. So I would say to people, don't miss those bits out. Good. Thank you. But you know, in the course of the podcast, I was going to chat to you, I'd mentioned your other novels. You know, you've already written two books in the series and, and there's another two in, in the pipeline. In the course of the podcast, we, we'll, we'll chat about them. But what I wanted to do is to take you back to your childhood for the kind of literary journey of your life and start with the first question that we always have is your favourite book from childhood. And the one that you've chosen is The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. And what was it about that book that's stayed with you? Well, in part, it's a cheat because it was a book that was read to me by my father. My my brother's 15 months older than me. My, my sister's four years younger than me. And every night before we went to bed, we would all gather in my dad's study and he would read to us, which was really lovely. So he always had to pitch something. I think my poor sister got the, the rough end of the stick because he always had to pitch something that would appeal to three children of slightly different age. Um, and The Hobbit was the one that really worked for all three of us. That was followed by The Whole of the Fellowship of the Ring. And I'll tell a story about that afterwards. But I think The Hobbit, I think just Bilbo Baggins is just such a great character. And this, you know, Smog as, a, as the Wicked Dragon and Gollum. And there's just a lot of, there's a lot of tomfoolery with the dwarves. There's a lot of jeopardy and adventure. And just the language, I mean, you know, even if you didn't follow the story fully, that just the language is so beautiful, the names and the uh, the adventures, it was just just magical. So I uh, really had very, very strong visual images from being read to and then read it myself later. Because I always feel that a book that you choose from childhood always sticks with you anyway. And whether it is a book you read yourself, but, you know, other people have said as well, it's that experience of remembering their parents reading to them and and a friend of mine had said he'd started he started reading books to his I think his grandson who's maybe too young to appreciate it but he said what he wants to he almost wants to impart that idea that books are important books can give you pleasure they can be a shared experience and it's a good thing to sit and spend time as a family reading it is fantastic yeah 
And I, I think it was just that it's being transported, isn't it? It's suddenly not being in that slightly chilly study, but, you know, sudden, suddenly in a, you know, in front of a dragon sitting atop a pile of gold. And later on when he was reading, when my dad was reading The Fellowship of the Ring, we got to the stage, um, spoiler alert, where, where Gandalf falls down a canyon. And I mean, we were just in floods of tears. My sister and I, we, we, well, all of us. And, you know, we went to bed weeping and my mother was really cross with my dad and had to, you know, come and console us. And my brother actually got up in the middle of the night and read on, came back, woke us up and told us, it's all right, Gandalf, it didn't really die. So I still remember that vividly. I mean, he's doing it as much as the curiosity of finding out the story, but actually... Doing it for us. (laughs) As the oldest sibling, yeah, to to reassure you, that's that's a nice thing to do. Yeah, that's very typical of my brother. I mean, when you when you then subsequently read the books yourself, was it a different experience, or was it just? It was. It was definitely a different experience, and it was. I must admit, I really appreciated the language, both hearing it, but then reading it again. You realise just how beautifully written it is. I probably read it in my teens. I wasn't. Uh, that was several years later from where I, when I'd had it read to me. But um, yeah, thought it was a lovely book. I, I never went and on and read the Fellowship and the Rings, but I certainly read the Hobbit. And have you subsequently read it at all into adulthood? No, I haven't. No, it might be nice to go back to it, actually. Because I was always interested, you know, that idea, particularly if you were to read it now, I don't know what the experience would be in actually reading the story. Mm. But I'm guessing then that, that what it does is then it, it transports you back to being that wee girl yeah. and your dad reading it to you, which is just a nice experience as well. It's lovely. And I did see the film and I did really enjoy the first Hobbit film. But that, again, is a completely different experience because, you know, it's not as you imagined it. Because somebody had said to me quite recently, actually, it's what, you know, one of these things that somebody says to you and you think, I wish I'd thought of this years ago. And it was, again, it was a book that they had started reading in childhood themselves. And I think it was almost like every five or ten years, maybe, in different stages of their life, they would read the book almost to see what the reaction, what the reaction okay. as a child, as a yeah. teenager, 20s, yeah. 30s, 40s. And I think, yeah. I wish I'd thought of that because that's a brilliant yeah. idea. Yes, and some books would stand the test of time and some probably wouldn't. Because I think it's, I mean, obviously that Tolkien is a, a kind of phenomenon. I've read The Hobbit. I've never read The Lord of the Rings trilogy. I've seen the films, but I don't think, and from speaking to people, a lot of people who seem to be very much fans of it, it they would read it at a certain age. And if they hadn't yes. read it by then, then, by then. you're never going to go back and, and read it. I think I'm in that category. If I can take you on from your favourite book from childhood, and go on to your favourite book from kind of teenage formative student years. And the book that you've chosen is The Periodic Table by Primo Levi. I did two years of science and then two years of engineering at university to get a degree in chemical engineering. And one of the nice things about the university I was at was because of the collegiate system, because we were all in colleges, I didn't actually mix with other scientists or other engineers. Most of my friends were art students with a few honourable exceptions And I often felt I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about what I was doing in a way that made it interesting or engaging to others. So we would talk about books or films or quite often they would talk about the essays they were writing. And I sort of felt when I started talking about what I'd done in the lab, their eyes would glaze over a little bit because it just wasn't familiar or particularly interesting. And I was on a road building project in Sri Lanka. I did a a voluntary summer where we were meant to be doing some engineering and actually we were simply there to entertain the local villagers. So we did a lot of singing and dancing and not much road building. And uh, we shared books. Uh, the other students I was with, we, we all shared books and 
very good friend, Carla, introduced me to Primo Levi, The Periodic Table. And it was the first book I'd read where a scientist explained what they did in the world of industrial chemistry in a way that was accessible, interesting, I mean, fascinating. They, you know, it's a series of great detective stories. And I guess I have always thought that if, if I was ever going to write, that's how I would like to write. And that's a pretty hard, high bar to set. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's a book I often give if people ask me what I do that before Phosphate Rocks. That was the book I would I would give them to say, okay, here's what someone who is a theoretician in a practical industrial world, here's here are the kind of things they get up to. And it's a very, it's a very moving book because although it is a series of, of short stories about he he also um he was an Italian Jew who was incarcerated, shipped off to Auschwitz by the Germans during the war and survived only because of his chemistry. He ended up working in the the lab of the, the Buna rubber factory at Auschwitz and was able to drink. He knew enough about the chemicals he was working with. He was able to keep himself from starvation by eating acetate and drinking ethanol and other things and making cerium flints to sell to the inmates in exchange for pieces of bread. And he's written very, very movingly about Auschwitz in other books like um, If This Is a Man. But this book on the face of it is really about his experiences in chemistry, both before the war and after. But there's one very, very moving chapter, Vanadium, which links those two post-war and uh, concentration camp days together. And it's, a, it's a, just a very beautifully written chemical mystery with a, with a human aspect to it. So it's a book that it, it just, it, in some ways it's a series of short stories, but it's so beautifully put together that it works as a, as a whole as well. Because I think, did you, did you name check that at some point in your novel? I did, yes. I certainly used a quote from Prima Levy, yeah. Because I, on the back of reading your novel, I've, I've read If This Is A Man and The Truth, yeah. Yeah. which I would recommend everyone and anyone should read yeah, as a kind of... beautifully written, aren't they? Yeah, and it's so heartbreaking and as a, as a chronicler of what, what happened there. But I, on the back of your novel, I then, I, I'd ordered, uh, I haven't got around to reading it yet, but I ordered the periodic table because... I think in the back of as much enjoying your novel as much as I've, I've read Primo Levi's books as well. And I thought I'd love to read, you know, because it's almost like before we started recording, I was one of the great things about this podcast is when somebody enthuses about a book, that's contagious. And I kind of felt that within your novel. That's why yeah. I thought, well, I want to go and then read this book by Primo Levi. Um, oh, I hope you enjoy it. As I say, that there there are some stories. There's a couple like Carbon, which is which is more of a little poem about you know the cycle of life, and then there are others which are just great whodunits. Um, there's a lovely story about um, people adding a piece of onion to a batch of varnish, and nobody can remember why they add a piece of onion. Um, and it turns out in the days before temperature control, you could you know when it sizzled, you know you'd got it up to the right temperature. But you know with modern temperature control you don't need that but people still add this bit of onion almost as if it's a piece of magic and I just love little things like that I think they're just uh, fascinating. When I was doing some research on it as well interestingly the Royal Institution of Great Britain back in 2006 they named it the best science book ever so I I don't know where that kind of alludes to what you were saying is that the science within it but it's done in such an engaging way that somebody who maybe doesn't have that background can really become immersed in it as much as anybody yeah. who would understand what some of the things that he's talking about yeah it's the human stories that kind of give you you know it show you just how fascinating some of the world you know bits of the world is around us and how how messy and complex it is too so was that in terms of, of writing phosphate rocks is that one of the things because it's interesting right at the start you're saying 
when you were at university, you maybe found it difficult to explain what it was you were studying to people who didn't have that background. But as you're saying that, and I'm thinking, having read the novel, obviously that's no longer the case because you're someone like me who, who doesn't know anything like that. Then you can become engaged and start to feel like you're learning something. But with something like the periodic tables, that may be either the benchmark or that the kind of inspiration for what you were partly what you were trying to do with the novel. Yes, I mean, I didn't think I would ever be able to do it. So, you know, the, the, I've been I've been writing now for nearly 10 years. And so Phosphate Rocks really started off as a series of sketches, you know, just reminiscences. There's, there's a lovely thing um, in November run by a charity called NaNoWriMo, which is National Novel Writing Month, where the idea is you just write freely. So you don't plot, you don't correct, you don't edit, you just try and write 50,000 words in a month and it doesn't really matter what comes out, you know, just, just let it flow. And it's, it's quite hard, but it's a great exercise, actually. And it is really interesting what does come out. And that's really where, when I started writing down, I remember that's where I was amazed how much I did remember. But then that, those sketches kind of went in a drawer and I didn't really know what to do with them. And it was only after I'd started writing escapist novels that the Jack Silver series are kind of much more crash bang wallop sort of James Bondy type globe-trotting thrillers. I kind of learnt a lot more about writing uh, with those and then came back to Phosphate Rocks and then met the most wonderful editor, um, Robert Davidson at Sandstone Press, who kind of guided me through actually turning it into something that, that was publishable. Because you mentioned, obviously, the, the novels I had mentioned in the, the introduction there, the, the, as you say, more kind of high-octane. But it was interesting when I was looking, I think it was on your website, and maybe part of the motivation was you as a reader saying, where are, where are the great female characters? Because interesting on the back of, in fact, in the back of your Phosphate Rocks, there's a, there's a quote from the Sunday Times Crime Club about the chemical detective, where it says, action, intrigue, and a stonkingly modern heroine. It's a blast. <laughs> and I loved that idea when I was reading just how, almost like that idea of people say write the book you want to read and you write the character that you can't see anywhere else and I I really love that idea. Yeah I've thought a lot about the idea of a female James Bond because I've always loved the James Bond movies and more recently I've gone back and read some of the Ian Fleming books and golly he's appalling I mean you know he's a sexist snobby racist cold mean piglet and you know the idea that you'd want a female James Bond no thank you. But you could have a female character who, you know, who did lots of exciting stuff without being quite such an unpleasant person. So I guess that was sort of my motivation. But I really, really wanted a character in the Chemical Detective series who used brains rather than brawn. So I've always been a little uncomfortable with the kind of Laura Croft type Tomb Raider characters. I mean, I know that's a game and a film rather than a book, but, you know, just to make a woman do the things that a man does doesn't seem to me like, you know, a satisfactory. Um, Equally, you don't want someone constantly weeping and, you know, vacillating. (laughs) So, you know, real women are kind of strong and capable and active and have agency. So that's what I wanted my character to be. It's one of those things, again, I think, where... When you read, you know, as I say, even just your motivation for writing those books, the first thing that struck me is, I wonder why nobody thought, you know, there must be other readers and other writers who would think there's something missing in that, maybe even that genre of, as you say, strong female characters, not strong female, not replicating the male equivalent. But So that's interesting. What was the reaction? What has been the reaction? Obviously, the first book was, was shortlisted for that debut prize so obviously it got I presume a a good positive reaction 
yes by and large yeah I mean it's very it's very hard for new authors to get reviews and so you know I've had a lot, lot of support from Scotland actually that's been lovely I always started off with with several you know several in the series in mind I always write things too complicated and then have to simplify them so I've got plenty of spin-off stories waiting waiting to go but it's it's great fun to write and it, you know the first book in particular was 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 a real kind of revenge book on a sort of amalgam of the worst bosses I've ever had and I've had some lovely bosses I have to say but I have had some real pillocks and so you know it's incredibly satisfying torturing them on in print the, 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 the particular people I'm thinking about were corporate psychopaths, so they would not recognize themselves. You could describe them in, in, you know, intense detail, but because they viewed themselves as God's gift to, you know, wherever they worked, they would have no idea quite how much they were loathed. That does sound like great fun to write, actually. It's great fun. <laughs> <laughs> also strikes me as the sort of character and sort of stories that would transpose themselves onto either the big or the small screen. Well, let's let's keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, I think that would be great if they, if that's at all possible. And, I, and also, I've been very naughty because you know, in James Bond, there's lots of very beautiful disposable women. So I've got plenty of very beautiful disposable men in my books. <laughs> that sounds that sounds brilliant. It's almost like a literary revenge for that genre. Absolutely, yes, yes. Revenge is a dish best eaten cold. Well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Fiona Erskine. And Fiona, we're on to your third book choice in the podcast, and that's a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Leonard and Hungry Paul by Ronan Hessian. And what is it about this quite simply wonderful book that you've decided to Um, recommend to everyone? It is a truly wonderful book. And also, I think it would appeal to lots of different people so trying to trying to get a book that you would recommend to anybody is quite a hard ask as as we were discussing before we started recording one person's favorite book might be another one's most hated book and uh, you know it's always interesting it's great that people have different tastes otherwise you know everybody would only be reading one author but this is a book that I just found and in fact all of the books that have come out from Bloomers Press there's a whole series of them uh, Sharon Duggle and Heidi James and Colette Snowden. They're all incredibly kind books that they have at their heart, I think, a celebration of ordinary kindness and not in a mawkish or sentimental way, in, in a very sort of just, you know, this is how it is kind of way. And I was particularly touched by Leonard and Hungry Paul because it's the story of two very ordinary men who quite enjoy board games, quite enjoy their own company. They're not particularly ambitious and it's just a very beautiful portrait of their friendship and if that doesn't sound exciting it is much more exciting than than you would expect I was hand sold it by my local bookshop Drake bookshop in Stockton and I think this book has been really successful through word of mouth because when one person has read it they just really they want to pass on the feeling that it gave them to someone else and especially in lockdown and, you know, all the difficult times and uncertainty that people have been going through, it's great to have a book which is a kind of uh, a sort of calming, grounding. And it's also beautifully written and very funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, find it, I found it absolutely joyful. It's wonderful. I think it's gentle. I think it, it kind of maybe reminds you of that sometimes there'll be lots of people who are maybe like Leonard and Hungry Paul and sometimes they're dismissed because they don't 
conform or fit into what we expect people should believe or behave or or want from life but actually it was that gentleness that ultimately which makes you feel by the end of the book this you've just read something absolutely beautiful exactly and the other ones in you know bloomers decided that last year they were only going to publish books by female authors they decided that they were underrepresented so there's a sharon duggle should be fall behind colette snowden captain jesus and heidi james the sound mirror and all of those are amazing books it seems to me that Bloomers is one of those tiny, small presses that seems to be able to do no wrong. So I always look forward to their, you know, their new books when they come out. And I also think what fascinates me about somebody like Conan Hessian, who had been writing that that book, it's different from like a lot of books in terms of those characters. But it's because it's done in a way that, as you mentioned, it's not. It's either not mockish, they're not caricatures, they're not cliches. Yeah. They're just you realise they're real people, and yeah. makes you start to think that there's either you know people like that or maybe people have been guilty before of dismissed somebody just because they don't you know they're maybe not as loud and as ambitious or absolutely it's it's the quiet people it's the quiet kind people and the the other thing is although they they don't appear to have much ambition you know they have incredibly rich life it's just you know we we shouldn't judge people by their material success or you know their wealth or their drive you know thank goodness there are people who are content and and find find joy in small things and it's nice to see that reflected in a novel, which, as you mentioned as well, is also very funny. It is. It is very funny. But you're right. I immediately I immediately recognised people, you know, and thought, you know what, I probably ought to look again and uh, not be too quick to judge. Because I also recently just read his, he's brought a book recently called Penenka. Penenka, yes, I read that too. Uh, yeah. Which, and part of the reason that, because there's obviously there's a football connection football, to that, yeah, which, of course, yeah. which I realised immediately from, from the title for anybody who, who would know football would immediately recognise that. It's slightly different, but in the same vein of, I don't know if ordinariness is, is the right word, even though I'm struggling over saying it, but, it, <laughs> but it's that idea of, it's fascinating actually with people who, who are, small things that have affected them and affected their lives but it's a brilliant story to tell and yes. totally engaging I love that book as well it's about you know it's a there's lots of drama but it's not you know that people who you have to really work and we all know people like this you really have to work to find out what's going on in their heads or you know to get them to actually admit to the emotions that are kind of twisting them some books are so full of drama and people declaiming and things happening it's great to read something where the kind of the tortured character simply refuses to confess that they're mucking yeah. up their lives through one regret that they can't actually address. I thought Penenka was super as well. And I think as well, maybe kind of touching on some of those other books that you mentioned that are published, is it Blue Moose? Blue is Moose, the, the yeah. There must be a real skill, and there is a real skill, I think, to make the ordinary extraordinary and engaging. For example, I think Anne Tyler, as an American writer, does that in a very, it seems like simple mundane things, but tells beautiful stories that engage you well you're the second person who's mentioned Anne Tyler and I, I've never read any so I must I must give it a try and I completely agree with you I mean I think it's very easy to write crash bang wallop you know bodies and bloodshed and all the rest and I think it's it takes real skill as you say to shine new light on the ordinary and make us look at you know the kind of people we know and the things we're familiar with day to day in a new light I mean that's a real really fantastic skill and yeah. Ronan is such a lovely guy and so supportive of other writers. Uh, he's a civil servant in Ireland and uh, he's just a completely down-to-earth person. He's also a mu- musician as well. That's nice to hear. 
yeah but he couldn't he couldn't be more unassuming and supportive of other writers he's great the other thing that I liked about Leonard Hungry Paul again you touched on it there was the fact that it did seem to its success seems to have grown out of the fact that readers just talking to each other and, yes. and passing it rather than a big fancy marketing campaign it's actually people just telling each other read this yes. book and, and you'll enjoy it Absolutely. Another book I was going to mention was A Modern Family by Helga Flatland, which was also likened to Anne Tyler. That's again, if you know, one of those books that you wouldn't, you know, the description wouldn't make you pick it up, but it, it is it is a wonderful study of a Scandinavian family where the, the patriarch and the matriarch sort of age 70 decide, decide to get divorced. It's the reaction of the children. It's the shock of the children, you know, that they take for granted and you know, they've, they've got children themselves and the idea that their parents would divorce after after 40 years, almost 50 years of marriage is just, you know, shakes the whole family to its foundations. And it's a really interesting book. Obviously, a book that you would recommend to anyone. And as you said, you wanted to, to choose something that you thought as many people as possible could enjoy. And I think Leonard and Hungry Paul fits into that category. The difficult question then follows of a book that uh, I couldn't pay you to read again. And you chose less, it wasn't so much books as, as kind of categories of books that I couldn't pay you to read again. So the, the first category was classic books by men claiming special insight into female sexuality. <laughs> yes, and my big hatred is D.H. Lawrence. Oh, you just see, it makes my skin creep. I think like many of us, we were made to read books at school. And for example, I loathed Jane Austen at school and only discovered her in my 30s and just realised what, what a fantastic writer she is. But being forced to read them at school, I Pride and Prejudice, I just could not get, I just couldn't get my head around. I was just bored. I wasn't interested in Regency. You know, I was a punk. I couldn't care about balls and being polite to people. But the one I never, ever learned to appreciate was D.H. Lawrence. I couldn't see what all the fuss was about. And I really disliked the fact that people would say that he had some special insight into female sexuality. I just think, I think his books are creepy. <laughs> I've told the story many times before. When I was in fifth year at school, all the boys in our class were given Catch-22. And it was the girls who were given Sons and Lovers. And, yeah. you know, I always think, it, from my point of view, it was genius from the teacher because he gave yeah. us a, a book that teenage boys would absolutely engage in. Yeah, And I'm not quite sure whether there probably be girls in the class that would maybe have had the same reaction to you, to Sons and Lovers, yeah. and it would have stayed with them in a negative sense throughout the life. Yes. That I also couldn't get on with Anna Karenina. I got so cross with her. I just thought, you know, for goodness sake. And, you know, while, while realising that times were different then, it still felt to me like a, a portrayal of a woman's emotions from, from a, an outsider's perspective. And I just don't think it worked. And then Flaubert's Madame Bovary was similar reaction to it. Again, you know, I think if they hadn't been hyped as, you know, insightful, I probably, you know, probably would have looked at them and just said, not for me. But they just made me really, really cross. Because I was going to ask you that, is it because the fact it's a male author trying to not just portray a female character, but as you say... To get inside is, their head, It's yeah. then given that praise that perhaps a female writer wouldn't have been given in the same situation. Yeah, and I'm trying to think, I, d I don't know of any female writers who have the, the brass neck to try and write about male sexuality. I mean, you know, you can, from the point of view of getting right inside the head, I mean, obviously, you know, you can, you know, many writers write brilliantly about sex, but this kind of insight into what's going on, I always think it's taking, taking liberties a bit. 
I mean, of course, every individual is different. So to just classify men and, and women is already a terrible generalization because there's a huge spectrum within that, you know, within within gender. But yeah, I just I think it comes down to it. I just didn't like it and I was forced to read it. So nobody is going to force me to read it again. <laughs> <laughs> and not even for money. Not even for money, no. Uh, one of the other categories that you mentioned was overhyped modern novels which fail to live up to the fuss. Yeah, and I've got to be really careful here because, you know, we've all agreed that there are books that just weren't for us. And so, you know, usually if you realise pretty quickly that a book is not for you, then then you stop reading it. And, you know, I would never leave a bad review. It's, you know, it's just it wasn't it wasn't for me. But every now and again, you'll get a book which gets under your skin, either because it's so much fuss has been made over it or because you think it's been kind of categorized as that, you know, the great novel about race or the great novel about love or the great novel about something else. So with, if you don't mind, without naming particular books that have irritated me, I think it's actually great fun when you do have a book you hate to talk about it with someone else, because it often, it reveals an awful lot about what you like in books and what kind of gets your goat. And I realized that one of the things, it was quite an insightful writing teacher that I had at one one course that we did called Debbie Alper. And we were all discussing One Day by David Nichols and it divided us completely. And she revealed that he's actually a screenwriter and he writes in dialogue and there isn't actually much description around, you know, around that. And some people love it because it gets, you know, gets straight to the heart of the matter. And other people who want to be transported hated and I'm in the second category I just I didn't get what all the fuss was about I didn't like the characters I didn't warm to them but if you think of it almost as a radio play then I begin to get it that book I mean I I have a I confess I have a slight affection for it because the one day that he talks about is July the 15th which is my birthday so I was kind of slightly (laughs) I was predisposed to to certainly reading it because it was interesting that because one of the things I think for this category again when we were talking about earlier on of you know you and I could read the same book and have a totally different reaction to it. And one of the previous guests, a book blogger called Gordon McGee, who raved about your book, that's how I ended up reading the book on the back of his recommendation of Phosphate Rocks. His brilliant phrase in this particular category was he just says, The book's not for me. And that I think that's such a simple phrase, but it's so perfect because it's just not it's not a bad book because other people might enjoy it. It's just yeah, not, not for you. Yeah. And, and I love that. So it, it's such a subjective thing. And and that's part of my thinking always where I don't really put anything negative, say, on social media about books that I don't like. I only talk about books yes, that I do like. The books you do like, yeah. Who, who am I to say, don't read this book or read that book? Because someone else might equally not enjoy the books that I do. I think it's when you have books where none of the characters you can get behind. You know, those are the ones that really make me cross, you know, especially if you've, you've kept reading it thinking, well, you know, you know, at some point I must engage with, you know, somebody in this book. And then you realise that, no, it's not going to happen. And then you think, oh, I just wasted, I just wasted a couple of hours. You know, it's really interesting you saying that because I've just finished reading a book, which I'm not going to mention, which somebody had sent me. And I actively despised the main character and, <laughs> and had to force myself to read it for, for exactly yeah. what you've just said. It's because I just yeah. didn't, I didn't care for the main character yeah. at all. And, and there was nothing at all that redeemed them to the point yes. where you don't have to love every character, but there has to be no. something that makes you... Want you to have continue. to care. You have to care what happens. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's quite a difficult reading experience, I found. And, but other people love it. I mean, my, my husband reads books for their cleverness. So he'll read people like George Perec, who writes whole books without, with missing vowels. 
you know, and, and you know, the cleverness is in telling a story without the letter E, without you really noticing that the letter E is missing. And, you know, it's a fantastically, you know, it's a wonderful challenge, but no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather read a story with the, with the E's left in where they're, where they're needed. It's quite, I mean, I think as well, you know, when you're reading, sometimes, maybe sometimes you want to read a book like that. Other times you want to read a thriller. Other times you want to read something, you know, a, a gentle book like Leonard and Hungry Paul. Sometimes yeah. it just depends on the mood you're in. And as a teenager, I mean, you know, Prima Levy is the only book I'm admitting to, but as a teenager, I read mountains of Mills and Boons and Barbara Cartlands and books I wouldn't touch with a barge pole now, but, you know, real comfort read. And, uh, you know, just, just a, a couple of hours transported somewhere else. And I was also going to just ask you in terms of your own writing, I mentioned in the introduction that there's two more books in, in your the Chemical Detective series, one due in 2022 and on 2023. Are you, are you still working on them just now or are they, are they done and dusted? Yeah, so, so book three is done and that's set in Brazil. That's been a lot of fun to do. I've, I've travelled quite a lot to Brazil for work. Uh, it's a fascinating place. Great cocktails, great music. Shame about the infrastructure. Structure and shame about the corruption but yeah that's that's been great fun to do and that's grown that book so it, it may well become book four as well because it's uh, there's too much in it so one is done and, and one is well plotted out and as you in terms of your own kind of writing structure are you always working on things that are you know in between everything else that you're doing in terms of your work if you always get ideas that are bubbling under the surface yes ideas are not a problem having time to actually put pen to paper is and in my previous job to previous but one to this one, I did a lot of traveling. So I was away, you know, for quite lengthy periods of time. And I, and I found writing was a fantastic escape when I was away from home. And, and I, you know, I didn't have to apologize to anyone for not vacuuming or washing up or you know, I could <laughs> escape to my hotel room and write as much as I wanted. It's funny, I, I'm, I'm definitely an early morning person. So my current job tends to require me being at the, at the site quite early. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm not forcing it. I'm just having a bit of a rest and maybe I can learn to be an evening person uh, yeah. when it comes to writing and just see what happens. If not, I'll take some time off and I'm quite a fast writer, you know, once I get going, but it's quite nice just to mull around the, the kind of plot ideas for a bit and then I'll put pen to paper for book four. Because also the, you know, in terms of, on the one hand, you've got this series of books, but Phosphate Rocks was com something completely different. And again, is that something, if you get that idea for that standalone type book you know whether it's tapping into the experiences that you've had kind of similar to that then you can just go and do that as well well I'm working up to my very first book which was the reason I started writing I was I'd been working in India on construction projects and uh, while I was there I went to visit the site of the the world's worst industrial accident at, at Bhopal in 1984 as you may remember there was a horrific release of toxic gas over the sleeping town of Bhopal and we don't know how many thousands of people died that night but um, there's at least 4,000 confirmed and probably many more and uh, hundreds of thousands injured and the site's still there the factory's still there it's still rusting it's not been demolished it's the land hasn't been remediated it's still polluting the the groundwater of the people who live around it and I was so shocked because my whole my whole working life has been about making things better and I was so shocked to find that was still there. That's what really started me putting pen to paper. The first novel I wrote is unreadable and, you know, will never surface in the form that I wrote it. But it was my anger with that. So that's that's the book I would really like to write. I just need to mull it over a little bit longer and find the right way to tell that story because it is a, it's the most dreadful injustice and needs to be 
needs to be righted and it's super complicated you know it's not just an evil American firm and a, you know um, it is a it's a horrible messy the only people who've benefited over the last 30 odd years have been the lawyers and meanwhile is a complete stalemate in terms of actually doing what's needed for the people who live around there so that's my project but I'm not quite ready yet it needs to be done justice to. I also think as well in, in part of the writing process I think maybe people don't realise that, that actually, as you, you've mentioned a couple of times, just mulling over ideas in yeah. your head is it important. Because sometimes that's that can be just if you're out for a walk, that can yeah. be the difference of working out some structural part of your plot or your story that's, that you're, you're stuck with when you're looking at your laptop. But suddenly maybe the fresh air just kind of clears your mind and you think. Absolutely. And, and for me, it's swimming. That's my great writing time. <laughs> it's, or it's my great thinking about writing times when I'm swimming that really helps but I would say the other thing I did learn is that you have to write it down as well you're going to have the most brilliant ideas in the world when I started off I thought oh you know, this is great I'll, I'll kind of I'll kind of write down a kind of vague outline and then my editor will do the rest and it was quite a shock to discover that you actually have to care about the words and how they're put together <laughs> and not enough to have great ideas you do, you do actually have to write the book but that can be a great deal of fun once you're in the flow it, it's really nice because you just escape to another world and you get to know you get to know your characters really well well, we're on to the, the fifth and final question in the podcast, and that's either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. And you had you gave me, a, there was kind of three in the running. Uh, I'm not sure which one has, <laughs> has come out on top. Well, I can tell you what's come out on top, but the last book I've read is, and it's going to be huge, is a book by Jane Jesmond called On the Edge. It's a thriller uh, set in Cornwall, and it's about the return home of a um, a complicated individual who's also a very successful rock climber um, or free climber I should say and is a little bit addicted to risk and thrill and she she finds herself suspended from a lighthouse and cannot remember how she got there and then the rest of the book is kind of deconstructing exactly what's happened and it's absolutely it's knotty and twisty and you know adrenaline pumping full um, and I can't recommend it highly enough. And I think that is coming out in September or October. I'll check the exact date. And that's with Verve Books. And another book which I'm dying to read, but I haven't got yet, is uh, Lorraine Wilson's This Is Our Undoing, which is a sort of dystopian, a sort of slightly future set in the forests of Eastern Europe. Uh, she's one of my favourite writers and uh, she's a beta reader. We, we read each other's books. This one I haven't read yet, but she's been hugely helpful with mine. And she's just a, one of those fantastic writers, been writing for years and years and years and should have been published 10 years ago. And it's getting published now and she's going to be, that's going to be really exciting. That's obviously an important part of the process for you writing. And I'm guessing for her as well is having readers that they can trust to give honest, honest feedback. They're very special people. And you have, first of all, you have to like their writing. I think that's really important. And secondly, you know, it needs to be people that you can take an unpleasant truth from. They need to be people who will actually say, you know what, this doesn't work. Or they would probably won't say that to you because they're nice people, but they'll say, for me, this passage, you know, might be worth looking at again, or this twist didn't feel true. Um, so yeah, hugely important. But you've also got to be really careful not to send it to too many people because you tend to get, as we said before, all readers have different takes. And if you're not careful, you get lots of conflicting advice. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's there's a couple of people who I really trust to read, you know, relatively early drafts, and they won't spend a lot of time saying, well, you misspelled this here and there. 
but they'll say, you know, here's, here's how I feel about, this is what it made me feel. And this is where it, it, I stumbled and, you know, or where I wanted to stop reading. And they're, they're honest and you could be honest back. But I know I'm cheating terribly here, but I do also have to have a huge shout out for the Northern Crime Syndicate who are a lovely group of northeast uh, northeast and northwest england writers who've formed a group in in fact it's been really important in lockdown and it's um adam peacock rob parker robert scrag judith o'reilly and trevor wood and trevor wood's the man on the street and then the book i'm reading now one way street he's just fantastic it's kind of like train spotting meets rebus it's a, uh, a homeless man who ends up having to act as kind of detective because nobody else will take seriously the, the death of, some, uh, of a home, another homeless person or a death witnessed by a homeless person is not, is not taken seriously. And they are fantastic books. They're great, great whodunits and really well written and set in Newcastle. So I think if, I've got, if I'm only allowed to pick one, then I'll pick Trevor's, uh, Trevor's <laughs> Highway Street. Because what I liked, I, I haven't read the book, but when I was just, just having a wee look about, you know, what it was about, I think to try and get into the crime genre, at times it seems like quite a crowded market. And so I liked what he's tried to do in terms of introducing a different type of character. So it's it's just, as you say, it's a homeless person. And, and I'm guessing in terms of the novels, you'll find out his backstory and why, why he's there, but also why his skills might help. But just the fact, rather than a, a detective or a private detective, I, I like the fact he's just done something quite quirky and, and different and unusual. And the banter is fantastic. I mean, he's really got that kind of, you know, when people are, you know, again, there's a lot of kindness actually in there, but, you know, disguised as quite aggressive chat between the the individuals. It's, um, yeah, it's really, really beautifully done. He's a tremendously nice guy as well. And I'm guessing that if in his, in his future books, once he's listened to this podcast, that phrase that you just mentioned, it's like transport meets rebus. That, 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 <laughs> that must end up on the book cover, surely. You'd pick up a book if you, if yeah. you saw that on, on the cover. You just mentioned there the fact that it's like in a, in almost like a kind of a collective of crime writers. Again, just touching on the fact in the last 18 months, it's been challenging for everybody, both just in personal levels, but, you know, for example, for writers. Have you found that just that having that, that group and be able to either bounce ideas off or just connect people, that been really important? Yeah, it's been lovely. It is. I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky because, you know, as a family, my youngest son actually came back from university in lockdown. So, you know, we were part of the family was together. My, my oldest son's in America and I've been working all the way through and the industry we're in was a, a critical industry. So, you know, my life carried on relatively normal, although doing a lot more from home than I would normally have done. But looking around and just seeing all the uncertainty and, you know, particularly for, for the wonderful people in the health service who, who do the most, you know, fantastic job in difficult circumstances and teachers and all sorts of key workers. So, you know, I cannot complain. But having said that, having been introduced in 2019 when The Chemical Detective came out to the world of crime festivals and, you know, crime writers are the loveliest people. You would have thought that, you know, we were backstabbing a bunch of, but I think because we get all our nastiness out in our books, <laughs> actually, you know, as individuals, incredibly supportive. And I, I, maybe this starts with the kind of Val McDermott's and Ian Rankins, who are just, you know, genuinely nice, the Doug Johnsons and the, you know, who are genuinely nice human beings. You know, it's just become a, a very supportive group. I know you had Morgan Cry on the other day, you know, another guy who, you know, really encourages at Bloody Scotland the sort of crime in spotlight than the new writers. 
So, you know, it's a very inclusive, very welcoming community. Um, and so having discovered that, it would have been horrible to have had that cut off. So with the Northern Crime Syndicate, we, you know, we've done some Zoom events and that's been lovely. That's kind of kept things going. And I've met and read people that I wouldn't normally have read. I've had recommendations. And then we have nice chats just generally about the publishing world because it is a bit of a mysterious, a mysterious old world. So it's always nice to compare with other people. Yeah, I've yeah. said this in a few times that it has always struck me that the crime writing community is so supportive and as you say that goes from the top that yeah. when people get up rather than pull the ladder up after them yeah. they actually stretch yeah. down a hand and pull people and, up and help up yeah. and i love yeah. that i think that's so nice you don't realize how wonderful it is until you've worked in an industry where that doesn't happen but no uh, the crime writing the crime writers are a great bunch and in terms of obviously phosphate rocks has come out this year have you been able to do actual events now or has everything been done remotely the- did manage to do one event with Drake Bookshop in Stockton, which is the first one for 18 months. And that was great fun. Um, that was at the Northeast Volume Music Bar in Stockton. And it was really exciting because while we were there, that it was a, it's a nice big music venue and we had, we had live music as well. And it was a sunny afternoon. So we were sitting at, outside in the evening and there was a real live police crime raid, two houses down. So Stockton is an exciting place. How did that feel after... Obviously, writers have had to adjust in terms of, particularly, you know, if MD's had a book out, then I've had to do even the book launch and any events remotely. And Zoom has been a godsend in the fact it's been able to connect people. But just to go somewhere and sit in front of an audience and read to an audience or talk with an audience and engage with readers, I'm guessing that must have been great. It is. It is great. And and what's great is the side meetings. So, you know, a lot of, you can do a lot on Zoom. Of course you can. And actually, People who might not be able to travel, who might not be able to afford to travel, or who might um, not be well enough to travel, or it might be too far. It's made it a lot more open to people, but you do miss that personal connection. It's the chats around the events. I can't tell you how many, you know, fantastic people I've met just on chance encounters or gone to listen to, to one panel because of one particular person and then been really, really interested by somebody else on that panel. Thinking, oh, you know, that sounds, I'd really like to try their book. And I think it is incredibly powerful if you, you don't need to like the person, but you need to be interested in what they're saying to think, oh yeah, I'd like to read that. I'd like to find out more about that. Kind of goes back to what we've been saying about sometimes if you're talking to somebody, whether it's a friend or as you say, if you're listening to somebody, the way they'll talk about a book is kind of what engages you. Absolutely. It makes you want to read. Although I would say Zoom for the purposes of, for example, this podcast and putting us in touch has been great because, you know, it's meant I've been able to, to speak to people like you and other people and, and chat. And, and it's been, yeah. I think that's been a, a wonderful, you know, it's been a bonus. Yeah, no, I think, I think what we need is a, is a mixed model, you know, the best of Zoom with the best of hopefully when things begin to open up a bit and people get back to normal. Well, we sadly, Fiona, have come to the end of the podcast. Um, oh, I, I, <laughs> I could go on talking for hours <laughs> yeah it was almost that was almost like a panto there it was like <laughs> um but it's been it's been lovely talking to you um, i'm kind of want to finish the way I, I started in terms of telling people that your novel phosphate rocks obviously you've now given us a wee bit of an insight into the book and what it's about what my will still say is to people just read it and then thank me afterwards because it was a wonderful reading experience as I said to you, Gordon McGee, the book blogger, it was him that recommended it to me. And the way he spoke about it just made me want to go and read it. And I was so thankful I did. So thanks for joining me in the podcast. I also wish you continued success with that novel and all your other writing. 
Thank you, Paul. And, and thank you, Gordon, if you're listening, for having been such a fantastic supporter of this book. I'm really, really touched and really delighted that it's uh, struck a chord. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.